If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Luke chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke. We'll look at verses 39 to 56. And the text is also printed in the, the bulletin on the next page for you. Um, let me mention, um, we've finally got new little invitation cards that reflect the proper time and place and everything where we meet for worship on Sunday mornings. And so there's uh, just a whole bunch of these available. Uh, there's some out on the back table. Go ahead and take as many as you want. We can replenish that little stack that's out there. But um, especially good to use this during Advent. I think it's a, it's a time of year. It's a season where it's really easy to invite friends. and People almost expect to be invited to church every once in a while. And so um, don't let them down. <laughs> uh, actually, it's a good idea. Just, I mean, if you... You know, get a little nervous about inviting friends to church or whatever, then, um, well, start praying for somebody, right? Start praying for one or two of your friends or coworkers that, um, that you know don't go to church or, you know, they don't believe the gospel or whatever. And, um, pray for them and uh, maybe that will eventually lead you to boldness in inviting them. So um, we're working our way through a pretty traditional Advent series. Uh, Songs of Christmas, right? Um, it's the poetic or prophetic kind of songs uh, that are surrounding the birth of Jesus in Luke 1 and 2. Uh, there's a fellow named Graham Scroggy, an unfortunate name, that um, <clears throat> says the, uh, these songs that are recorded here, sung by you know, Mary, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, and Simeon in the temple after Jesus is born, and uh, they're... This guy, Scroggy, says they're the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. Um, come at a transition time, right, in the history of redemption, God dealing with his people, and now he's doing something uh, new and exciting. And this morning we're looking at the song that is historically called the Magnificat, which comes from the, um, the first word in Latin, anyway, in, in Mary's song, um, my soul magnifies the Lord, Magnificat. Uh, Mary has just learned from the angel Gabriel, which we talked about last week, that she, even though she was a virgin, was going to have a baby, and that this baby w uh, was the Son of God. And she also learned that her elderly relative Elizabeth, um, even though she was old and had been barren, never had children, um, she was going to have a baby too. And so Gabriel's news for Mary was that God was doing something wonderful in sending his son, doing something miraculous, something impossible for people to uh, imagine up or make happen at all, uh, in sending his son to save his people from their sins. In our passage this morning, Mary, after hearing Gabriel's news, goes immediately with haste. Uh, to see Elizabeth is probably um, somewhere close to a 100-mile journey. Remember, she's probably 12 to 16 years old and newly pregnant. And so such a journey would be difficult for her. Um, and the result of the visit that, um, that she has with her relative Elizabeth is this great song, the, the Magnificat. Mary exalts God with joyful praise from the depths of her being. And um, I think as we come to it, that, that kind of joy is probably something that's elusive to most of us, right? Um, even if we agree with the reasons 
that Mary gives for her joy. That joy might not always be present with us. I look at this passage and say, yep, uh-huh, that's right. Um, I give intellectual assent to everything that Mary says. But what she says doesn't actually fill my heart and my soul with joy. Um, hopefully you know what I mean. I'm not the only one here that's like that. Uh, it's a disconnect between mind and heart or between what we profess and uh, what's really going on inside of us. Um, and that can be depressing, right? When we hit the Christmas season, um, it can be depressing because we're constantly confronted with the idea of joy. If you've got the TV on at all and you see all those commercials of happy, happy people spending money and, um, you know, joy is all around us. It's just slapping us in the face. Uh, we hear it in all the Christmas songs. Um, it's the season for rejoicing, for warm fuzzies like that, right? But we know that... Um, However much we might want to, a lot of times we just don't actually possess true, deep, abiding joy. If you uh, pay close enough attention to what's going on inside of you, you might come away thinking there's something wrong. Uh, but that thought's usually disturbing enough to make you not want to pursue it any further. I say we should pursue it. Uh, Mary's song exposes what's wrong with us quite clearly, and it sets the gospel before us in a way that enables us to truly rejoice. So let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we need your help. We know that there's uh, something wrong with us, and sometimes we're too afraid even to look at it and uh, look at our own hearts and our minds and what we truly believe and uh, the way that our relationship is with you. Uh, and who we are. These things uh, are often too much for us to bear, and so we pray that you would help us, that you would uh, comfort us by your spirit, that you would help us to see the truth by your word, and not to run away from you uh, when we hear the truth, but to run toward you, uh, to throw our lives on you, to trust on your mercy toward us. We pray that you would help us as we come to your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as usual, in just a short section of the Bible, there's a lot happening here. Uh, The baby in Elizabeth's womb is, uh, as you know, John the Baptist, right? And he's six months along in, um, in gestation. When Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, John, little John, leaped for joy, leaped for joy in her womb. Um, we could spend time talking about what this means for topics like abortion. Uh, we could spend time talking about what this means for topics like um, the faith of infants. Right? But it seems like the focus is on little John's first activity as a prophet. That was the reason why he was conceived, right? to be a prophet who would foretell the coming, make, make straight the ways of the Lord Jesus. And his joyful prenatal proclamation got his mother's attention. And, uh, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and got so excited that she shouted a benediction to Mary. It emphasizes the fact. It was a loud voice that she exclaimed. And, um, and Mary turns to God in joyful song and composes verse that's on par with the Old Testament prophets. In fact, her her song is saturated with Old Testament references. Uh, Some commentators find at least 12, in addition to the obvious similarity to Hannah's prayer, which we read in our Old Testament reading from 1 Samuel chapter 2. So, little John and Elizabeth and Mary are all filled with joy at the occasion. Joy is the common factor that characterizes each one. And I don't know about you, but uh, I look at what they share here, and I wonder how to get that to characterize me, how it can characterize my life, my actions more. Uh, I wonder what kind of delightful, vibrant life I'm missing out on. Because such spiritual jubilation seems so rare to me. I wonder why I don't have that kind of living joy more often, especially since... I think I'm able to agree with their words, everything that's written here. I think I'm able to agree with it. Why don't I have that kind of joy? In my experience, I'm more likely to reduce Mary's words here, her song, the Magnificat, to a creed for recitation than I am to burst out into spontaneous singing. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. It's like a creed, right? Uh, why the disconnect? I believe that. Why, why the disconnect? Why doesn't my spirit exult in the gospel? Um, I know for myself, a lot of the time, it's because I hold to God's mercy, theoretically, uh, but I hold to my own merit functionally. I hold to God's mercy theoretically. I hold to my own merit more practically. Um, and those two things, God's mercy and my merit, are mutually incompatible. They are uh, antithetically 
opposed uh, to one another. And, and I, more often than not, probably prefer the way of merit. The way of merit. Let me explain what I mean. <clears throat> By almost everyone's account, Mar Mary is the best person. You know, maybe after Jesus, right? She's the best person. Um, who's going to merit more than Mary? But Mary didn't earn, deserve, merit the favor that she received from God. Regardless of anyone's teaching that she was immaculate, uh, a perpetual virgin, bodily assumed into heaven, and a co-redeemer with Jesus, <laughs> regardless of anyone's teaching, we have in her song, by her own very words, um, a very simple confession of sin. She calls God her Savior. Only sinners need Savior, right? Um, only sinners need a Savior. Mary knew she couldn't possibly deserve or earn or be worthy of the favor of a personal relationship with God. She knew that she needed to be saved from herself, saved from her sin. She was relying on His mercy. It says in verse 50, His mercy is for those who fear Him. In verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Commentator Walter Liefeld says, Luke uses the blessing that Elizabeth gave Mary to call attention to Mary's faith. Right? Elizabeth said in verse 45, blessed, literally happy, is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary trusted. She believed. She put her faith in. Uh, she trusted in her heart the word that Gabriel told her, the word from God that the angel spoke to her. She was in no way trusting or relying in her own merit. Uh, it's because she truly believes, because she truly knows God's mercy, <clears throat> that she is overcome with enthusiasm. Magnifying, exalting, rejoicing in God. And that is where I, for one, experience a disconnect. Because I too often wish that I could rely on my own merit to have favor with God, to feel good about my relationship with Him, to feel good about my standing in His sight. And that's what we all want, isn't it? Right? To be right with God, to have favor, to find favor with Him, and have a place um, with Him. And that's exactly what we suspect to be missing. That relationship with God, that rightness between us and God, that's, that's what we suspect is missing upon a thorough self-examination. When we really look at ourselves thoroughly, we suspect, well, we don't have that. We all want that, but we don't have it, that relationship, that rightness with God. But we look deep inside, we see emptiness, we see vanity, in our hearts, we see persistent tendencies to sin against God and against other people, and we know instinctively, because we see that stuff in us, that, um, that we're in trouble. And if you spend any time, if you're an introvert like me, um, probably suffer from spiritual depression every now and then, um, it feels hideous, right? You look inside at what's there or what's not there, 
And it's just, it's hard. Uh, Martin Luther said there is no greater pain than the gnawing pangs of conscience. When you stop to think about it, it's pretty much unbearable, isn't it? Um, so we've got to fix it, right? We've got to shore up our sense of worth or belonging or acceptance with God. We've got to do whatever it takes to get rid of that gnawing pang of conscience. We've got to make ourselves presentable to God so that he'll accept us instead of rejecting us like, like we probably deserve. And that is the way of merit. Self-justification. It's the sinful fix for the problem of sin in our lives. Uh, Clifford Williams says this, Self-justification <clears throat> convinces us that the accusations of our conscience are mistaken. It soothes the sharp pain of being fully conscious of our real natures. It clothes our naked selves. And we'll look to anything to, to do this, to get this, right? To get a sense of merit, to get a sense of righteousness in order to gloss over, cover over our sins, right? Um, a friend of mine, quote him a lot, Charles Garland, um, he, he uh, talks about this and he kind of plays on the idea of the Boy Scout merit badges, right? There's nothing wrong with Boy Scouts. Um, but they, they have this, this system, right? You progress further along, you, you accomplish these things, and you get the merit badge. Like, I can build a campfire in 30 seconds with nothing but my bare hands merit badge or whatever, right? <clears throat> um, he kind of plays on this. He says, uh, you know, we look to anything to justify ourselves with God, to, to get a sense of being right with him. And so I've got the, the good parent merit badge. I'm working on the faithful spouse merit badge. Uh, I've got the I gave blood merit badge. I'm a good tipper merit badge. I floss regularly merit badge. I'm honest merit badge. I vote. I'm good looking. I'm competent to provide for my family. I recycle. These are all merit badges, right? And some of these are funny, but... You know what? Like, they all work. They really do. And if we know someone else who builds us up, who gives us merit badges, who hands them out, um, tells us that we're great and worthy and special, like my mom does, oh boy, that's a good friend right there. And the absolute worst is when we look for the, the religious merit badges. Philip Ryken says, nothing is more deadly to spiritual health than spiritual pride. We got the tithing merit badge. We got the I'm orthodox in my theology merit badge. We got the I help those in need merit badge. The I pray and read my Bible daily merit badge. The I fast twice a week And these are the worst because they're insidious. They're the hardest to detect in ourselves because uh, we're really good at fooling ourselves into thinking these work, into thinking that the religious stuff makes me a good person. How can it not? That's what it's there for, right? Thomas Merton says, Who can do good things 
without seeking to taste in them some sweet distinction from the common run of sinners in this world. Unfortunately, our good opinion of our merit, uh, our righteousness, is not the same as God's opinion. Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet says to God, Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Filthy rags. Actually, it's uh, menstrual rags. Our righteous deeds. Mary puts it this way in her song. In verse 51 through 53, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has scattered. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. The rich he has sent away empty. Those who cling to pride of intellect, pride of power or position, uh, pride of wealth, to make them someone in the world, to make them someone in God's sight, Um, those people God has exposed as foolish and weak and empty. The reality is, the reality that we don't want to face and therefore we try to cover up, is that our souls are like a bleak zombie wasteland, right? Um, And thoughts of our merit amount to strapping a big red bow on a zombie. And the reality is that you know, we don't just need to repent of our evil deeds, our wickedness, our unrighteousness. We also need to repent of our good deeds. We need to repent of trying to use merit to be someone, to make us right with God. Because the real soul killer, the real joy killer, is the way of merit that says, if you can be a good enough person, you're all right. If you can be a good enough person, you don't need Jesus. And if you live that way, that's one or two things, one of two things for you, right? Either you will succeed in being a good enough person and have some small, smug, flickering, sickly kind of happiness. Or um, you'll fail at being a good enough person and you'll be totally depressed that you couldn't meet your own standards. Either way, it's the way of merit. And you've got to quit trusting your own merit. And I don't just mean theoretically assenting to the truths of the gospel. I mean reordering your entire life around the way of God's mercy. Because you will never sing for joy in God until you understand that you are, you are morally and spiritually bankrupt. Right? And Jesus alone is the wealth of God freely given for you. You'll never sing for joy in God until you understand that you are enslaved to sin. And Jesus is the only one who can set you free. That you're spiritually homeless and wandering. And in Christ, you're adopted and brought into God's family. That uh, you're desperately hungry and thirsty for righteousness. You're starving for it. And Jesus alone is the bread of life. 
and a fountain of living water. You'll never sing for joy unless you abandon all hope of ever earning God's favor of your own merit and you trust in Jesus alone to rescue you from the mess of your life, the mess of your soul. D.L. Moody said, God sends none away hungry except those who are full of themselves. And God has always dealt with people in this way. It's uh, you know, mercy versus merit, right? Um, and that's represented in, in Mary's song. Her song, with its many references to the Old Testament, is saying that the whole Bible points to the mercy of God versus our merit. The whole Bible is a record of the reversal of the world's values in God's kingdom. God refuses to give his kingdom to those who try to merit it, but he gives it freely to those who cry mercy. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Riken again says this, we see this happen all the way through the Gospel of Luke. The rich man goes to hell while the poor man is carried into God's presence. The prayers of the self-righteous Pharisee are denied, but the sinful tax collector goes home justified. And I would add that the proud rich ruler goes away sad, while the kingdom is given to helpless little children. Reichen continues, as Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And at the end of the gospel came the greatest reversal of all. God the Son, who had once humbled himself to become a man, and then to endure the painful, shameful death of the cross, was raised from the dead in triumph. Having humbled himself, he was exalted. Did you ever play the game Mercy as a kid? Remember that game? Uh, it's the one where you lock fingers with someone, and you try desperately with all your might to bend them back and crush their hand. And, uh, you, Anybody? Am I the only one who went to public school here? <laughs> okay. Um, you know, you're trying to crush each other's hands, right? You do this with your friends and whatever. Uh, the girls that you like and you want to pretend you don't like. You try to crush their hand back until the loser, it hurts so bad he has to cry out mercy. Your whole life is like a big game of mercy with God. Um, and you trying to merit his favor is a meager attempt to bend him to your will. It's not going to happen. Instead, he often puts us in such a place of such desperation, bending us backwards, that we have no other choice than to cry out mercy. And no one who is clinging to their merit no one who is clinging to their pride is going to humble themselves that way. Giving in would be too humiliating. Better to be crushed than ask for mercy. And that's me, way more frequently than I would like to admit. Stubbornly refusing to confess my faults, refusing to ask for forgiveness until... 
Maybe I've built up a little bit of spiritual capital, or at least I've forgotten how bad my sin really was, so I can feel comfortable again enough to pray. Uh, and that's sure not the way that leads to true joy, is it? So give it up. You'll never live up to God's perfect holy standard. You'll never live up to God's perfect holy standard. And, uh, and that's okay, because he's provided another way for you. God is absolutely willing to accept people like you and me. And uh, when we had no hope of fixing ourselves, of finding a solution to the sin problem uh, on our own, he remembered his mercy. He took pity on us, and he took it upon himself to save us. At the right time, the Holy Father sent the beloved Son to earth to live a life of perfect obedience and to die the death of the disobedient, to die our death for you and for me. Jesus' merit, his righteousness, his perfection, purity, his moral beauty, his status in God's sight is fully and freely given to you by his grace. God knows who you are better than you know yourselves. He knows everything about you and he doesn't hold any of it against you because Jesus carried all that stuff with him to the cross. Whatever it is you're trying to make up for, whatever it is you're trying to cover up with your merit, Whatever it is, whatever it is, that you're terrified of being discovered by God or by other people, it has already been obliterated under God's fury that was unleashed on his son. Jesus, the righteous one, took, the righteous one took all the dreadful pain of our gnawing consciences. A pain that otherwise we would have withered under forever. And he suffered it until it killed him. And he said, I'll trade you. And in exchange, he gave us mercy. Jesus, the beloved son, was cast into the outer darkness by his father. And he suffered the alienation from God that our sins deserve and gave us instead the love and acceptance of God that he deserves. And now, when God looks at you, he smiles with eternal cheer. He rejoices over you with gladness, the Bible says. He exults over you with loud singing. And if that doesn't bring you joy, then I don't know what will. But as for me, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant in remembrance of his mercy. Amen. Let's pray. God, the, the longer that we live with you, the better we get to know you and know ourselves. It seems like the harder it is to believe that you would have mercy on people like us. And so the greater your mercy and your grace must appear to us in the gospel. We pray that you would do a supernatural work by your spirit of convincing us of your full and free love for us 
given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. That you would truly change our hearts. That you would cause us to be a people of great joy. That our, our souls would exult in you as our Savior. That the, the deepest, most um, inner parts of our being would be thoroughly changed by who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray that as this takes place, um, not only that it would be good for us, that we would be called blessed and happy and, and joyful, um, but that it would be good for the world around us. That our joy, our trust in you, our faith in the gospel would be uh, infectious. That people would see your grace in our lives, that they would see the way that we've responded to you, and they too would come to you for mercy. We pray that you would help us to be um, merciful as you have been merciful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.